America is, I think, consummately a nation of choice. You wouldn't know the name probably, but in my circle of computer programming, one of the great rock stars of the last 10 to 15 years is a man named David Heinemeiner Hansen. DHH, as he goes by, is from Denmark, and he has a very, very famous and funny and utterly inappropriate in church diatribe about his frustration with ordering a hamburger in America. In Denmark, he orders a hamburger, he gets a hamburger. In America, he orders a hamburger and he's asked, cheese or no cheese? Pickles or no pickles? Lettuce, tomato, onion, mustard, ketchup? And it drives him crazy. But I think it speaks to just the character of our country. It is estimated, I think, with some accuracy, but I don't know how you can really get that detail, that currently at Amazon.com, there are 488 million different items available for sale. And I think Cheesecake Factory, about that same number of items on the menu. (laughs) So our character as a nation is really about choice, and it's one of the things that distinguishes us. I think part of it has to do with the fact that For many in America, they are here as a result of a choice that an ancestor or that they made. And I have to caveat that. Right? I have to caveat that because if you're African American, your ancestors probably didn't have a choice, and that was a terrible injustice and tragedy. And I have to caveat that because if you're of Native American descent, you were already here, and you probably didn't get much choice about what happened next. And that was also an injustice. But for many of us in the room, and actually for a number in our room, literally made the choice to choose this country from their home country, or their ancestors did. And that, I think, is part of what makes our nation great, that each succeeding wave of immigrants has brought a renewed energy and vitality to the country that keeps it perpetually young and fuels industry and innovation. And the importance and the power of that choice, of what nation will I choose to live in, is something we're going to be looking at today as we continue our Advent study of the individual passages that make up the Christmas narrative. As we've been going back to the basics this year to try and get a flavor, a little bit of an experience of the birth of Jesus. We're going to be looking at a group of foreigners who chose to make a difficult journey to visit one kingdom, but when they got there, they discovered a completely different kingdom from what they expected. Now, before I go on, I want to acknowledge a book by Andreas Kostenberger. He's a professor at Southeastern Seminary in North Carolina. It's called The First Days of Jesus. And it's been super helpful for me in preparing this series because while it is academic and scholarly, it's actually extremely readable and is really just focused on the background and meaning of the passages related to Christmas. So if you'd like to dig a little deeper into what the Bible is saying about Christmas, I'd recommend the book. It's one of the 488 million things you can get on (laughs) Amazon.com. So we began three weeks ago when we looked at what the Bible actually told us about the birth of Jesus. And we concluded the message was fundamentally not about the how of it and all the the things we tend to think about at Christmas, but about the who. Who was laid down in that food trough on that first Christmas night? It was the very Son of God. 
And then two weeks ago, we looked at the role of the angels throughout the, the events surrounding the birth of Jesus as we worship through music. Last week, Chaplain Kevin talked about the shepherds and the wise men and the differences and about how they came to encounter Jesus. But today, we're going to look at even more detail at the wise men, as they've come to be known, and how Matthew uses their visit to contrast two very different kingdoms. So turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. I'll put it up on the screen, but it's a long passage, so it may be easier to follow in your own Bible if you've got one. And as I did a few weeks ago, I'm reading from a different translation from what I normally use because we hear these Christmas passages so often that we just filter them out and we miss the greater message. And so I'm just trying to shake it up a little with the words. It's, it's still an accurate and, and appropriate translation, but it's just trying to break us out of the ruts that our minds can sometimes get into. Matthew writes, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his stars at Rose, and we've come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem and Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you, who will be the shepherd for my people, Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he, he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. And then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. Now, I'm not going to talk about this part of the passage, but Herod's lying. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. Now, these events take place sometime after Jesus was born. But the very fact that a few verses later, Herod is trying to kill any boy who's two years old or younger, this could be up to two years after the birth of Jesus. And the point of chapter 1 of Matthew, the verses that immediately lead up to this, is to establish that Jesus is the rightful Davidic king, the Christ, the Messiah. In fact, the very first verse of Matthew, the first verse of the New Testament, says that this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so now what we see, and I'll bring the passage back up as we walk through it, we see is that Matthew has put Jesus, the rightful king, in the same sentence with Herod, the current king of the Jews. And that's not just to provide historical context, although it does do that, but it's to begin to intentionally interweave 
the story of these two very, very different kings and their very, very different kingdoms. And these are interwoven throughout the narrative. And in fact, you could argue that through the rest of, of Matthew is about this interweaving of human and divine kingdoms. Now, after Jesus was born, a group of wise men show up in Jerusalem. The original language calls them Magoi, which we translate as Magi. I'm going to keep using Magoi because it's kind of a cool word. And these individuals have fascinated Christians for centuries. The original Magoi first showed up in Persia, modern-day Iran. But by the time Jesus was born, the concept and the term had really spread. So these individuals could have been from Babylon. They could have been Persia. They could have even been from as far away as Arabia, given some of the gifts they brought. We don't really know. It's not critical to the text. Magoi were astrologers, priests, magicians, sorcerers, and interpreters of dreams. They were the intellectual elite of their societies, and and clearly these Magoi possessed a great deal of wealth because they could outfit a caravan with supplies and security for a journey that is at least 40 days each way. If you're coming from Babylon, it's about 40 days each way. If you come from Persia, it's further. If you come from Arabia, it's even further. A long time. And they came because they saw an unusual star rising. And whether it was a supernova or a comet or a planetary alignment or or an angel that was simply there to, I say simply, but significantly there to illuminate their path, the important part is it got their attention. And it was probably based on some knowledge of Numbers 24:17, which I'm sure everyone has memorized. And, uh, that passage says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. This passage was widely understood to be referring to the Messiah and the Jewish communities that had spread throughout the eastern lands would have shared this information with the Magoi. And so these Magoi know that something really important has happened in Israel. But they don't know enough about Jewish scripture to know where. And so they do the logical thing, right? A king has been born, so logically you go to the capital of the country. And you go to talk to the sitting king because the new king's probably related to him. And so, rather unwisely, they ask the incumbent king, where's the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we've come to worship him. And their idea of worship is probably different from what we think of. I mean, we're here to worship God. They were there probably to worship an earthly king. These were not believers. They're pagans. Uh, And so the idea probably has more to do with uh, showing respect and honor and pledging friendship and future allegiance when the king takes the throne, right? They know a powerful king is arising, so they're trying to get in on the ground floor of a a good investment, allying themselves with this new king. And verse 3 reports that King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. And, And that word that is translated deeply disturbed 
describes a very strong negative emotional disturbance. It, it really describes a, a shaking within yourself, a stirring up, if you will, uh, true, it's closer to terror or fear. And we need to understand why Herod, who had ruled for f- almost 40 years at this point and had, had killed plenty of people who were rivals and plotters and he didn't seem to be too afraid of much, is so upset. And to understand what can get a bloodthirsty tyrant like him upset, we need to understand a few things. One, he is not a rightful king of the Jews. He is not even really Jewish. He is from the country of Idumea, which is a neighboring territory. And he was installed by the Romans after a three-year war with the Parthian Empire, which had previously been allied with the last of the rightful kings of Israel. And regardless of where the Magoi specifically came from, whether it was Babylon or Persia or Arabia, they were all part of the Parthian Empire. And so all of a sudden, Herod meets this group of influential Parthians who have come to pledge allegiance to a new king who is clearly not related to Herod because he knows who's been born. And knowing that he had been involved in a three-year war with the Parthians about who was the rightful king, He's pretty upset. This is why he is deeply disturbed. And all of Jerusalem is disturbed because they have a memory of a three-year war over who the king is. And they may not like Herod, but he's the evil you know. Verses 4 through 6 relate a meeting with the leading scholars of Israel to determine the location of the Messiah's birth. And they cite Micah 5.2, which is what's in verse 6 here. And it points the Magoi to Bethlehem, which is a short walk of five and a half miles. Now, this prophecy from Micah is 700 years old at this point. The prophecy in Numbers that brought the Magoi there in the first place is probably 1,400 years old or more. And so this is the person that they've been waiting for for centuries And as Kevin noted last week, not one of them could bother to get up and walk along with the Magoy for a trip that would take about an hour and a half. The Magoy, however, do get up and keep walking, or riding camels, or whatever they did. They complete their long journey as the star miraculously went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. And now we come to what is, for me, I think, the most significant part of the passage. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. Now, the original Greek here is difficult to translate in a way that both makes sense in English and captures the intensity of their emotion. Literally, it reads something like, they rejoiced exceedingly an exceedingly huge joy. There are so many adjectives and adverbs being piled on here that it is difficult for us to capture their excitement about having found Jesus. And I'm usually compelled at this point to ask myself, what's my excitement level about Jesus and how does it compare to what they had? And so then they went into the house and the text says that they fell down. Literally, they fell down and worshipped him and offered him treasures of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
And then God warned them in a dream not to return to Herod because he was an evil homicidal snake. And they went home a different way. Now, this is an amazing story, right, of a group of people who dedicated months of their lives to come and worship this little boy. And so it's easy to see why this captures our imagination, right? We have this sort of mysterious group of people. They're, they're foreigners. They're not believers. They appear. They do cool stuff. They bring great gifts. And then they vanish. We don't hear from them again in the text of the Bible. And so we get excited about that. We get fascinated with it. But, but is there more to this passage than just an interesting retelling of some facts about a larger-than-life group of people? I say absolutely. Because the Gospel of John writes that the world does not have enough space to hold all the books that can be written about the things that Jesus did. And so whenever we read something from the Gospels, we need to realize it is there for more than just telling us a few interesting facts. There is a reason that the Holy Spirit told the authors these facts This story, this is what people are going to need to know for thousands of years to come. As I said earlier, Matthew goes out of his way in this narrative to interweave these two different kings and their two very different kingdoms. And so what I want to do is examine three aspects of these kingdoms that are highlighted by this passage. The first is the contrast between the two kings themselves. On the one hand, we have Herod the Great. I'm not sure if he named himself that, but anyway, it's Herod the Great. The consummate political creature. He is able to play the game of Roman politics like a master. I mean, he's been given kingship of a country that's not even his own country. That's pretty good work. His ability to scheme to get himself to the top has demonstrated his mastery. He is the illegitimate but undisputed king of the Jews. He's smart. He knows at least a bit about scripture. And I think we can tell from verse 4, he has no doubt that this baby is the Messiah. We see also in here his ruthless desire to hold on to power at any cost. He is tyrannical. He is deceitful, conniving, treacherous, homicidal, insecure, and paranoid. If we had more time and didn't mind missing lunch, we could talk about what the records of history have to say about Herod and the terrible things he did. He was a monster. So all in all, he was really the perfect king for the dog-eat-dog world of the Roman Empire. But on the other hand, we have Jesus, the Messiah, the descendant of David, who's the legitimate king of the Jews. The one who was foretold as far back as Genesis 3 and Numbers 24 and so many other passages. The one who is the shepherd for my people Israel rather than a tyrant over them. The one who is innocent and free of sin. The one whom people traveled months just to worship when he was born. The one who is appointed and revealed by heaven itself through angelic announcements and astronomical wonders that could be seen for hundreds of miles around. Each kingdom reflects the character and the values of its king. In Herod's kingdom, we see a paranoid, closed kingdom that trembles in fear at the coming 
of the Messiah that they claim they wanted to have come. In Christ's kingdom, we see openness to everyone who genuinely seeks to worship the one true king. And that's the second aspect of these kingdoms that I want to talk about. That Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of God, is for everyone who embraces it. Chaplain Kevin talked about this, and it cannot be emphasized enough. Particularly in light of the deeply entrenched and unbiblical understanding that prevailed in Israel at that time regarding the work of the Messiah. Right? Because they had disregarded the extensive testimony of Scripture that the Messiah was coming to bring salvation to all nations, not just Israel. And this universality of God's kingdom, that it is available for everyone who puts their faith in Jesus, that's one of the dominant themes of the book of Matthew. And so we see it begin to unfold here right at the very beginning in chapter 2. As these Magoi come from a great distance away, even though they don't exactly know what's going on, they are eager to see and worship and pledge allegiance to this newborn king. These are not God's people. These are not the right sort of folks. Right? They don't know much about God or Scripture. But they know something is going on, and they are drawn to the person and presence of Jesus. And so they step out in faith, and because of it, they have been welcomed and honored at the beginning of Christ's kingdom and remembered for 2,000 years. And in doing this, they usher in the first fulfillment of centuries of prophecy that say the kingdom of God is going to involve people from all nations coming to the Lord to worship and bear gifts and offerings. Listen to these words from Isaiah 60 in light of today's passage. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you. And remember the wording of the passage as the star rose in the east. And his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Did you catch that last part about gold and frankincense from a 700-year-old prophecy? God's kingdom began that first Christmas, and that kingdom is for everyone. It's not just for right-thinking, churchy Americans or right-thinking, churchy Christians. It is for people of all nations, all backgrounds, all races, all social classes, all situations who come seeking Jesus as their Lord and Savior. It is for rich and for poor, for male and for female, for children and for senior citizens. And it's not just for those who have generally lived good lives before they came to Christ. It is not just for those who mostly have their stuff together now that they're Christians. It's for people who come from lifestyles and backgrounds that we would find repugnant. But if they're here genuinely submitting to Christ as Lord and Savior, 
And they too are a new creation in Christ. The kingdom of God is for them. And we need to embrace them. At all times, we need to remember this when we are tempted to be hard-hearted towards those who are different and lost. We should be deeply appreciative that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. We should stop being surprised when the lost commit sin and instead be sad and seek to help Christ on his mission to seek and save those who are lost right here in our community. And that brings us to the final aspect of these kingdoms that I want to talk about. And it's this. It's back to that question of choice. What nation, what kingdom will we choose to be a part of? Will it be Herod's kingdom, the kingdom of man, the kingdom of this world? Or will it be Christ's kingdom, the kingdom of God? Right, because like the Magoi and the citizens of Jerusalem, we have a choice. And it's a choice we have to make every day. We have a choice about which kingdom we're going to be a part of. And, and you might say, well, that's a no-brainer. It's obvious. See, we're all dressed up nice, and we're here on Sunday morning, and we're generally good people, and we, and we profess to love and obey Christ. So it should be obvious, right? And yet. And yet, it's not enough to be familiar with Scripture and identify with God and do amazing projects for Him because you can do all that and still be Herod. Herod certainly had to think he was in pretty good shape with God. His rule had been preserved for almost 40 years against all kinds of plots and schemes. He had built an enormous temple to God at tremendous expense. It was a wonder of the world. People traveled from other countries just to see the temple of God that he had built, right? He took this sad, sorry second temple that had been rebuilt in the 500s B.C., and he made it a marvel. And so he had to feel pretty good about his position, and yet Jesus was an existential threat to his personal kingdom. He knew that. It's not enough to be deeply religious and extremely knowledgeable of Scripture and zealous about God. Because we can do that and still be the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They knew the Scriptures better than we're ever going to know them. It's really better than I'm ever going to know them. Their zeal for God would put most of us to shame. And yet, when the Messiah came, they wouldn't even get up and walk an hour and a half to go see him. They wanted no part of him. He was a nuisance, an inconvenience, a distraction from their established religiosity. So as we examine this passage, we need to examine ourselves. We need to examine our priorities and our choices and ask, how excited are we about Jesus? Are we like the Magoy? who are willing to drop everything to encounter Christ? Are we willing to bear any expense and travel for months just to spend a little time with the newborn king? Like the Magoy, are we in a position where finally reaching Jesus results in exceeding rejoicing at an exceedingly huge joy? 
Are we ready to fall down and worship the Son and obey and offer up to Him our greatest treasures, the things and the people in this world that we are most attached to? Now, if you're not yet a part of God's kingdom, if you haven't yet put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have not yet trusted in His sacrifice on the cross, that it paid the penalty for your sins, a penalty that you could never pay, if you've not yet trusted in his resurrection and the promise of eternal life, then I would urge you to do that today, to make that choice to be a citizen of God's eternal kingdom. But for those of us who have already put our faith in Christ, the question is still there. Where does our first loyalty lie? Are we like the Magoy? Or are we like the chief priests and the teachers of the law, where we're using Scripture to hold Jesus at a safe distance from our heart. We're using Scripture to keep outsiders away and to keep a distance between us and those who make us uncomfortable. Is genuine worship of Jesus an exceedingly huge joy for us or an inconvenience to just be tolerated at times or an imposition in our busy lives? Now, if you're feeling like the Magoy, then savor that exceeding joy this season as you meditate on the babe that was born in Bethlehem, as you worship the man he grew to be, as you think on the one who came for all the lost and the broken for sinners like us, the one who grew to live that perfect life and to suffer that terrible death on the cross to take our sins upon him, and who was raised from the dead and led the way into heaven. But if you're feeling more like Herod, or more like the priests and the teachers right now, then I would urge you to repent of that attitude. That repent, turn away from that closedness to Jesus. That unwillingness to embrace his kingdom and all the people that he's invited into it. I'd urge you to turn to Jesus, the real Jesus, the one whose kingdom is available to everyone who earnestly seeks to obey him. And to be like the Magoy and just drop everything to worship him, regardless of the cost. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. We thank you for sending him into this world to show us the way and then to take our sin upon him, though he was perfect. Well, we thank you for the sacrifice of the cross and the hope that it gives us through his resurrection for eternal life for those of us who put our faith in him. And if there's anyone here who has not yet put a faith in Jesus, Lord, I pray that they, you would move them to join your kingdom. For the rest of us, Lord, I pray that you would help us to choose every day to be citizens of your kingdom and not citizens of the world. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.